Our text today is in the book of Mark. If you'll turn to chapter 1, we'll be continuing our study of this gospel. Mark chapter 1. Um, I will read the text. As you follow along, our principal text is, as listed, um, 16 through 20. I would like to start in verse 14, though, because it it has a lot to do with what um, 16 through 20 has to say. So I'll begin in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were mending their boats, who were, who, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I received um, uh, two bits of very important news this week. One was a phone call and one was a piece of mail. Um, The phone call was very startling. I was on my way to work. I didn't recognize the number and um, I was, usually I decline those, but this time I accidentally hit you know, answer, and of course, it's hooked up to my Bluetooth, so, you know, I got to continue with the call. So, I say hello, and the voice on the other end of the call, it was a little bit of a pause, but then it was incredibly just monotone and urgent, and I could not ignore it. The lady on the other end of the line was informing me that my social security card was under threat of being used in a foreign country. And it was nearly expired, and I had to immediately contact whatever number she was about to give me in order to correct this problem. I don't know if anyone else has gotten that call. That seemed specific to me. Immediately you know that you've probably gotten that call too. Uh, By the way, your social security card doesn't expire. So the second bit of news I got was in the form of a letter, okay? The letter looked official. It was from a government official. So I opened it up, and it was a summons for jury duty. I thought, well, this is probably the same group that called me about my Social Security card and immediately discarded it. No, I'm just kidding. We all know you can't do that, right? The fortunate thing was the, well, fortunate and unfortunate, was the letter, the summons, was for my father. 
because I'm his power of attorney, medical power of attorney. So I get some things like that, and I have to handle them. So there, it was a summons, and I read it, and it said, you are summoned to appear in court on this date, sometime in October, and this is by law. You can be incarcerated if you don't show up. Um, you have to plan for one month's time to where you might be able to serve on a jury and be sequestered and put away while you determine the fate of someone. And I'm thinking, there is no way my dad can do that. And you all know the story with my father, who's suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia. It just wasn't going to happen. It did have this little disclaimer at the bottom. I was really reading this one going, what in the world am I supposed to do? This, I, can I stand in for him? What, what am I going to do? It said, if you have a medical reason where you cannot fulfill this, you must, within a certain amount of time, have a doctor fax. I don't even know who uses faxes anymore, but they want me to use a fax machine to have a doctor say that this person, my father, is not able to fulfill this summons, and then they will be released. Now, we all know that those two calls and summons are not both legitimate, right? And we're all smart enough to know which one is. Our text today, we find a call. So our point in looking at this is going to be to discover if there's any legitimacy to this call. So as you can see, the title is Jesus, the God who calls. And this is what we're going to do today. Ready? Three things. Who does Jesus think he is right here? The secondly we'll look at is what is he calling these four disciples to do? And then finally we'll end with what in the world does this teaching have to do with you? So let us jump into the text and see what we can find. Who is Jesus in Mark's account? So let's back up just a little bit because I know Pastor Andy um, has been presenting something to you about Mark's intent with his gospel, with his story. Mark is unique in several aspects, so we all know, I'll just briefly go through it, uh, otherwise known as John Mark, uh, he is not a disciple, uh, nor an apostle, so how does he get included in, in, in the New Testament writers? Well, we know from church history, from indications in the text itself, that what Mark is doing is he is telling Peter's story. So he is uh, almost like a writer for Peter. Um, Peter is a disciple. Peter is an apostle. He even shows up here. His other name is Simon. And remember, Peter, or Jesus renames him Peter. His name is Simon Peter, but Jesus wants to call him Peter. Um, but Mark is giving the account of Peter in his gospel. But it's, he's not only doing that, there's something unique with, with Mark, and you're going to notice this in this first chapter. We always think about, when you think about Christology or a, a gospel that, that wants to really highlight Jesus' uh, divine nature, the first thing we might think of is the book of John, right? We think about high Christology, and it starts with John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, with God, the Word was God, and you're like, this is a big time Christological statement. So Jesus is God in the book of John. Well, you might not notice it on first look, but what Pastor Randy has been teaching us is that Mark is even, he, he's the same level of Christological involvement 
But Mark is taking it from a slightly different angle. And you're going to notice that in the book of Mark, Mark is making the outrageous claim that Jesus is God. Incarnate. Yahweh. And specifically, Mark is going back and looking at and thinking of the Exodus account where Jesus reveals himself to the Moses at the burning bush, where he says, who, who, who do I tell them when he goes to Moses is called to go to Pharaoh? Who do I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them the I am sent you. And that's the whole Yahweh, right? The sacred word to the Jews. So how do we know in the first chapter that Mark wants us to think about that? Well, we've been taught as we've been reading through this that we see, you know, he starts with the Old Testament. In the beginning of this chapter, we find Isaiah, and Mark draws heavily on Isaiah's prophecies. And the book of Isaiah is reflecting back. So you look at Isaiah, and you're thinking about Babylonian captivity. But what Isaiah is doing is he's reflecting back to Uh, God's people being called out of Egypt and into the promised land, the great exodus. That was the big moment in the Old Testament, is the exodus. And what does Jesus have to do with that? Well, you can see as you follow along, you've got a few things. Let's just take it by bullet points. So while the the chapter headings or the the paragraph headings in your text are not, they're not uh, inspired scripture, they're just an editor's note, they are helpful. So if mine, it says, John the Baptist prepares the way at the very beginning. I like that. John the Baptist, we think of Mark being in the New Testament, but the portion that deals with John the Baptist is straight up Old Testament. This is an Old Testament prophet, and he is preparing the way for the Lord. And then you see in verse 9, my chapter heading is the baptism of Jesus. Well, what's going on there? We have God, the Spirit, the Old Testament prophet, and the Messiah all on the scene. When that happens, and right after that, you have Satan. When that happens, you need to understand as a reader and a student of God's word that when you have this collection of of individuals, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the adversary Satan, Old Testament prophets, the Pharisees, I mean, Everybody who's anybody in world history is present in chapter 1. Something big is being announced. And what is that? Well, we're, we're going to get there. But the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, I would make the, the, the claim that the temptation of Jesus is an announcement that this person, Jesus, has defeated Satan. The defeat of the devil happens in chapter 1. He's tempted in the wilderness. That's what Mark is wanting you to to understand. And then Jesus begins his ministry. So this is a look back uh, to what God has already told you. The Messiah, in verse 1, we find the word Messiah. Isaiah writing points to a new exodus. This is Yahweh. Mark's account is showing Jesus as God Almighty. Now, some have claimed that the gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, could be called the gospel of immediacy. Now, why is that? 
Well, even in our text today, we're going to find the word immediately twice. So in verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. In verse 20, and immediately he called them. But it's not just in our text today. It is throughout the book of Mark. Now, if I were a really good preacher, I would tell you exactly how many times, but I'm not that good, and I don't have that number written down. But you can just trust me that it's like more than eight. So let's just say less than 100 and more than eight, which is a lot, right? So there's a lot of uses of the word immediately. It's like Mark's favorite word. There is the gospel of immediacy. Why is that? In verse 14, which is I read right before our text today, it says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The reason Mark is using the word immediately all the time, it's not because he should have been a comic strip writer and have all the bow, wang, or you know, bow, bam, you know, like the Batman. You remember the old Batman show? It would have kapowy. And I, I kind of think of that when I read, when I read Mark and immediately uh, kablammy. Uh, there's a lot of good words that, that that whatever guy used. Anyway, Immediately is Mark's word to indicate something big has happened on the scene of human history. And the big thing that has taken place is the kingdom of God has, a, has, has, has come on the scene. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That statement in verse 14 and 15 is to indicate to you that something different is taking place now. Precisely because Jesus has come fishing is necessary. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit later, but I just need to under, you to understand that why does Jesus why does Mark go from the the king the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand into this little quaint story about fishermen and fishing. There is a specific reason Mark wants to talk about fishing all of a sudden. It's not just a little cute story. So what is this business of fishing for humans? It's what it says, right? I know it sounds weird when I change the word man to humans, but I want you to get the aspect of it is weird because we read this and we think fishers of men, and because we've heard that, I will make, I will make you become fishers of men. In our minds, we think, oh, that's a neat little thing. In fact, I had a friend when, when we served overseas on the mission field, and he was in a very, very high-risk place in the world, right? Um, he wouldn't even use his real name, and I'm not going to use his real name, but he was in a very high-risk place, like more high-risk than where we were. Like, you don't know that there are missionaries in this place. And so whenever he was in the States, he would go around talking to people and uh, he never would use his real name. In fact, I don't even remember his real name, even though I was told. I just know he went by Jason Fisher. And uh, there's another Jason Fisher in Memphis, not that guy. But there is this guy who is in a very dangerous part of the world named Jason Fisher. That was his pseudonym because he didn't want his real information out there. And so I had the conversation with him once, you know, why that? And he goes, well, because I'm called to be a fisher of men, and I'm a fisherman, and I fish for men. I thought, well, that's cool. That's great. That's what the, the apostles did. And, and, and I do think that is fair, fair game for us to think that. But let's just think about it for just a minute. So let me back up. Why, why these random fishermen? Why are we dealing? Why is Jesus coming on the scene? We have the kingdom arriving, 
And then Jesus is in this remote part of the world on Galilee, nowhere land, talking to fishermen. Couldn't he have gone to Jerusalem and found a really good rabbi that was well-respected, well-renowned, knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, probably had them memorized, and picked 12 of those guys from Jerusalem, the holy city, to be his disciples? Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. Galilee is predicted in the prophets. And I'm not going to spend the time to take you back into Scripture. You're smart people. You can do that research yourself. It was prophesied that Nazareth is where Jesus would come from. The, the, uh, the tribes up there would be the place that the Messiah came on the scene. There's even some evidence that, that geographically, it's not a bad idea to grab these guys. What's going on in this time? Well, Galilee, Capernaum, more so than Jerusalem, was a world culture place. What I mean by that is fish were a luxury item. Like they didn't go to Kroger and get some salmon. They didn't have the means to do that. Most of these folks lived off grain. You know, you're not going to have a lot of cows grazing in the desert. So there weren't no hamburgers being grilled. That was bad English. Um, sailors, fishermen, Galilee was world-renowned for their export of fish all over the Roman Empire. We have evidence that fish from the Sea of Tiberias, which is the same place as the Sea of Galilee, were exported all over the Roman world to be consumed by the little more wealthier people. So what does that mean? Capernaum not, is on the Sea of Galilee, was a Roman outpost, a garrison, big. Herod, his palace, right there. There are world trading events happening in this place. Well, what does that matter for these fishermen? Well, one of the things is, and I know I've made fun of Peter before for having a, an accent, and I do think he did have an accent. That's evidence in the scripture. And maybe I thought it was a little of a country accent, but that's fine too, because I got a country accent too. That's fine. But Peter, being a world tradesman, was perfectly suited to as a Jew, but also in a, an environment, these people were perfectly suited to take the gospel to the world probably knew Greek, spoke in Aramaic, and was very familiar with Hebrew. You got those three languages, you got the ability to communicate. And all of these disciples had special skills and talents, but it wasn't because of their specialty and their talents or their expertise in fishing. Do you know why Jesus chose the disciples that he chose? He chose them because he wanted to. Why do you choose anything? We just read why the Israelites were chosen. That was what Brother George, what we, what we opened today with. Why did he choose the Israelites? Was it because they were big and mighty and awesome, had the best chariots? No, the scripture says the exact opposite. They were the least important. He chose them because he chose them. Welcome to mediocrity. 
You were chosen, not because you were special. You were chosen because you were chosen. If you are a follower of Christ, it's because Christ chose you. Does that make sense? So let's not get wrapped up into all the reasons why, although I've given you some. And let's focus on the fact that you were not special. You are enough. He will use whatever you bring. He makes his glory manifest through your mediocrity. In fact, if you were so great, I'm just guessing that God might avoid you because you probably know you're great. Fishing in the scripture means judgment. Now, one of the things I thought whenever we think about, oh, I'm going to be a fisher of men. Uh, I'm going to... uh, I'm going to fish men. So, so everyone knows I work at Chick-fil-A, right? Half of the leadership crew is here this morning. And uh, so they know I work at Chick-fil-A. My role at Chick-fil-A is director of talent and training. What that basically means is it's my job to find people. I got to find them. And then I got to train them. So I think through fishing a lot. Like I'm, I'm trying to figure out ways to catch people. Like throwing the net out, getting them. I've hired, employed half this church so far, right, Tyler? He's awake over there. He's going to be a driver for us. Um, uh, everywhere I go, I'm looking for people. Like, I'm fishing. That's my job. And the other day, I was like, I got I was talking to Jeremy, one of our other directors, and uh, I was real excited because this, this, you know, I've been kind of recruiting a family, and I finally applied. And I looked at him, and I go, I got them. And I'm doing this, right? I got them. I'm fishing. Well, think about it. What part of fishing is not so good. So it's, it's good for the fishermen, right? It's good for the people who are going to eat the fish. But who's it not so good for? Say it loud. It's not so good for the fish. You ever thought of that? So if you're a fisher of men, there's kind of a side to that that you want a little bit kind of downplay. We're not out here peddling something, trying to get people to join some club. Fishing in the scriptures means judgment, as it rightly should. And you can look all these verses up if you're quick to write these down. But in the Old Testament, fishing was when God is fishing, he's not doing it so he can have a fish aquarium and have little pets where he fishes. He is doing it in the aspect of judgment upon mankind and specifically on sin. Look up those verses and tell me if you disagree. We can talk later. But it is in view of the forthcoming judge of God. It's a summons to call. Uh, A summons is a call to the eschatological task of gathering men and women in view of forthcoming judgment. Now, there's some long words in there, eschatology, Basically just means the end game, the big story. Eschatology is concerned with the kingdom of God coming on earth. So it'll ultimately wrap up in the end. We all know the story from the Bible. That's what I'm talking about when I mean eschatology. So if you want to just not take my word for it, just look at Matthew chapter 13, 47. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. Here's what Jesus said about fishing again the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind now remember fishing we think of with hooks 
and that was certainly done back then too. But the predominant method of fishing was this beautiful thing. If you've ever seen it, go on YouTube. You'll get lost in a YouTube rabbit trail where they throw these circular nets out in the air, and it's just beautiful the way it flies in the air. Maybe it's just me. And it lands over this, like, I, there's literally fishermen that can cast a net that would encompass everyone in this room. I'm talking big circles. And they go down, and it's weighted on the edges, and it sinks really fast. So if you're a fish, and you're inside that thing, and you're too big to escape through the net holes, you're getting caught. It goes down, and then what they would do is they would have, usually the younger people, because they like to go swimming, and the older men would throw the nets. The younger boys would go out and they would gather up the net up under it, and then they would haul it back in. So that would become a basket full of net, uh, a net full of fish. Okay. So here's what Jesus said. Kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and, and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So do we all agree that when we start using fishing analogies, we're talking about judgment. We're not talking about trying to put the right bait on so we can capture men's hearts and win them over to the Lord. I'm not presenting to you a wealthier and healthier way to live life. This is not what this is about. This is not what the text is about, and it's quite frankly not what the gospel is about. And when you hear people peddling something that tries to say, stay exactly how you are, I've just got a better way for you to live. You'll be more wealthy, you'll be more happy, and you'll, you'll just be more satisfied in life that is someone who is being dishonest. Now, loving Jesus and having a relationship with him in this life is a wonderful thing, and you will be more happy. You will probably, it does not have no, no guarantee on your wealth because God owns it all before you had it and after. The whole concept of throwing something out there and gathering people into some movement that makes you have your best life now? Anybody who's having their best life now, anybody who's concerned about having their best life now has no concept of, hum of, of heaven. If you're having your best life now, the only thing in store for you is hell. You ought, to, you, ought to, you ought to get embarrassed if someone claiming the name of Christ says, I'm living my best life now. You ought to look at them and say, have you considered heaven? It's just funny to me. This, this life is a bunch of toil. And while I love Jesus and I go to work and I really love these people and the people I get to serve at Chick-fil-A, it's hard. I don't expect it to be easy. And just because I love Jesus doesn't make it easier. You're tending a garden full of weeds. Get down on your knees and pluck them. I'll save that for just a minute. This is a specific summons to the disciples. So I need you to understand that there's a specific word for uh, the disciples. John, his brother, 
And then the, the sons of thunder or Zebedee. Um, there's four disciples. It's his inner circle. You need to understand that this text has a specific word for these people. Scripture is not always just about you. I know that's not very popular either. I'm not trying to be kind of a firebrand here, but it's popular right now to open this book and read everything as if it was a love letter written to you and it's only for you. That's not the healthiest way to open your Bible and read it because, quite frankly, it wasn't all written to you. In fact, John Mark was writing to other people. Now, it applies to you, and all Scripture is inspired. I don't want to give the impression that you can just disregard it because it has no, no bearing on you, because it does. But you also need to understand there are descriptive and prescriptive stories. And when you read the book of Acts in particular, you have to be able to be wise and evaluate what's going on here. So this is another one of those stories where is this being descriptive? Am I to be a fisher of men? Or is this to be descriptive of what took place for those people? And my answer, sorry, is going to be both. It is descriptive, and there is an aspect of prescription. And I'm going to try to get into both of those. The soon-to-be apostles, which are the sent-out ones, are to become witnesses to the kingdom of Christ and the necessity of radical repentance. So when you read that, um, where it says, Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. I love that, the way the ESV puts it. I will make you become, because that's the verb tense. There is a process involved with these disciples where they will ultimately become fishers of men. And I don't think it's incidental that the very end of the book of Mark, it ends in chapter 16, verse 7, that says this. You ready? 16, 7 um, it goes, uh, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. This is after Jesus ascended, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now, if you remember, if you flip, flip over into John, I won't go there. But after Jesus ascended, they follow this commandment. They go to Galilee. What does Peter do? You remember what Peter does? This is an actual question. Anybody who knows what Peter did? When he went back to the Sea of Galilee, where his boat was? He went fishing. Thank you. He went fishing. There is a bookend here. He's going to make them fishers of men. At the very end of Mark, we find, or at the very end of Mark, we find a commandment to go back to Galilee and wait for Jesus. I don't think that's unintentional, not accidental, okay? Now, I'm going to pause real quick and make a few notes about vocation and occupation. Remember I said descriptive and prescriptive? Okay, so if you want to do like a little parenthesis, this is Mark about to get on a soapbox, okay? So I'm kind of stepping aside a little bit physically so you know that this is about to be a soapbox. Right, Jenny, I know the time. Thank you. All right, a few notes about vocation and occupation. Vocation comes from the Latin word vocal, vocation. You hear that? Vo vocal is to what? You hear me vo vocating right now. I'm speaking. Vocation is calling. Occupation is what you do. 
Now, there's been a lot of confusion over these two things. And it is a personal burden of mine that the church has done a massive misservice in the understanding of these things. Because we are often, when we find someone that is wanting to serve the Lord in the church, we ultimately wrap this person up, package them up, send them off to some seminary, and assume they're supposed to be either a pastor or a missionary. And that is one of the most unfaithful, horrible things to do to a new believer. And I'm not the only one that says this. Our friend Vody Bauckham is big on this trail. But quite frankly, our reforming forefathers were, were as well. Because that was the Catholic, Roman Catholic methodology. If you became a real good Christian, you were sanctioned off into the clergy and sent off into the wilderness to memorize Scripture to be absolutely no use to your society. Now, I don't have time to tell you all the reasons why this is personally and culturally offensive. So I'll just give you two books. And if you like books, write these down. Tim Keller wrote a book called, drawing a blank all of a sudden while I'm up here, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. I don't agree with everything Tim Keller says, but I agree with that book. Every Good Endeavor. He has a scriptural understanding of what occupation and vocation means. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean that you are Peter and his brother and John and James and you are to leave your occupation and go be a missionary. This came really into focus one day for me. I'm going to say it. Really into focus one day for me. I won't use names. A long time ago, I had just come back from a break from seminary, okay? So here, here I am. I'm supposedly this seminarian, and I can answer all things biblical. So annoying. But I'm, I'm helping out with a VBS somewhere. I won't even say where. And there was a, another person who was teaching little kids a VBS class and ran across this text. Taught this text to kids, right? And in the course of his teaching, he made this statement. See, they left everything. If God calls you, you, you leave your family. You, you sometimes even have to leave your wife. Leave your family? Radical. You leave everything. You go do it. You leave your job. You leave your wife. Whatever it takes. He owns everything. Leave, leave it. And there's a few wise ladies that heard him say that and afterwards said, what are you saying? And it came to fruition that this guy, okay, had a son who was getting divorced and was using this to justify it. Sadly. Now, he can't, the ladies came to me because I'm a seminarian. I know all things biblical and answer all questions and said, tell this guy what was right. And I'm like caught off guard because I didn't actually hear him say it. They said, this is what he said. And then he's walking down the hallway. And here we are. There's awkward conversation of me trying to straight someone out. And this guy was older than me. And I'm a two-year seminarian. And these ladies are wanting me to straighten it out. And they said, well, he used this text. So I said, what text? I opened the Bible. I read it. And I was like, Oh, and he said, you're okay to leave your wife. Oh, okay, that's not right. So he said, yeah, yeah, I believe it. He's like, in my face, you want to have an argument. And I'm like, oh. so I just said, well, just give me a second to read it. So I read the text. 
Um, and uh, I said, oh, and there's a moment in time, and you know this moment, like when the Lord gives you the words and it's just like perfect. <laughs> and you, you know, sometimes you, you, okay, you just get the words and you feel like the Lord is telling you to say this. And I said, I looked up and I said, well, that's awkward. He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, you claim that these people just left everything, including their wives, meaning divorce, to go follow Christ, and that would be really awkward. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, just later on in the chapter, it talks about Jesus going back to Simon's mother-in-law who laid ill with a fever and told her to get up and walk and healed her, and Simon's there. So that's really uncomfortable for this man who just divorced his wife to be going back to his mother-in-law to bring Jesus to heal him, right? That would be awkward, wouldn't it? And he goes, well, that doesn't mean blah, 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 blah. And he's like, so yeah, maybe it was awkward, but that still didn't prove the point. Well, and I said, well, that's not even the most awkward thing. Because <laughs> by claiming they left everything and you want to use everything, you've got four naked men. They left everything. They left their nets, their boat, their clothes, and now they're following Jesus, right? Because we leave everything according to you. Now, I know that's awkward, but I need you to understand that when God calls you to do something for him, here's the prescription part. He does not want to extract you from your circle. He wants you to change your why. I know, I serve chicken to people on a daily basis. And I work with other people who do the same thing. The thing I do now is just as sacred to God as when I was on the other side of the earth telling people about Jesus. And if you don't get that, we can have a theological discussion where I straighten you out later. Yes, Chick-fil-A is God's chicken. But trust us, it's not church. We deal with horrible people sometimes. Liars that say, I don't put forks in boxes when I do. <laughs> they want to claim that we didn't do this, and we know we did. They want to call us all kinds of names. I deal with employees who lie to me by, and look me in the eye and lie to me. Jesus, when he calls you, does not necessarily call you to change your occupation. He wants you to change your vocation. He wants you to change your why. That's what Jesus changes. It starts at the very core of you. So if you're a plumber, the thing that makes you a Christian plumber is you are an excellent plumber. You are the best. And everyone in the world knows that if you need a good plumbing service, don't mess with everyone else. Call that guy. They might not know exactly your testimony, but they know you're the best. This, this was really impactful. This is another book I recommend, How Then Shall We Work? This is talking about vocation and calling and work. Dorothy Sayers wrote extensively about the problem of work in England after 
the First World War. In light of where we are in the church today, her writing is prophetic. In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in the failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed, she, the church, has allowed work and religion become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work is turned purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion that seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not to be drunk and disorderly on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Your occupation should be absolutely ripped apart by your vocation. And not in the sense that you should leave it. It should be in the sense that you are now doing that unto the Lord. And the Lord demands excellence. Back to our lesson. What does this teaching have to do with you? And then I'm wrapping it up. It's going to go quick. What does this teaching have to do with you? There is an unqualified capitulation. Two big words. Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, and John, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the instance of John and James and the disciples, they did leave for a season their occupation. Their vocation is the thing Jesus changed, remember? They did leave their nets, okay? In this instance, Jesus called them to leave their nets, and they did. But understand this. Sometimes you read this portion in Mark, and you think, Jesus is walking by on the Sea of Galilee, shore on the Galilean coastline, and he just picks, walks by, oh, there's a random couple of brothers out there. You too, come with me. And they drop everything and follow him. Never before having any conversation or whatsoever with these two people or these four people. But that's not true. Because we know from the other accounts in the gospel that these guys were followers of John the Baptist. They had often been out, it says, disciples of John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist preach? John the Baptist re preached repentance of sin. And he preached it to Jews who thought, they were special. So understand that the Lord God himself had already been preparing the hearts of John, had already been preparing Peter's heart, Andrew, and James. This was not the first time they had met. This was just the time in which Jesus said, you're mine. And just like the phone call and the letter I got, the summons to follow Christ is based on the authority of the one calling you. While I could hang up on the fake phone call about my Social Security card expiring, I could not ignore the summons to appear in court for my father. He had to go get a doctor's note. 
And the same way comes with Jesus. If you understand who's calling you, if you feel compelled to live your life in a different way, if you sense that God is teaching you there is something about you and I want to draw you out of this world, you have lived this way selfishly for this long, but no longer. I'm teaching you that I'm calling you to myself. If that's going in in your heart, you need to understand one thing and get it really clear right now. This is not this is not some grandfatherly or best friend asking you to spend an hour with him once a week. This is the creator of your eyeballs. He designed the human eye and all the intricacies of the creation. Put every star in its place and knows them by name. Numbered the hair on your head. This is not some teddy bear that you can go hug when you're having a bad day. This is your God. And when he calls on the hearts of men and women, through his spirit, you are to repent. The immediate response without delay is, why? Because in Mark 8, 29, Peter makes the confession, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Trinity in the flesh. There is a commitment to serve him. So what does it have to do with you? You are to repent. You are to follow you cannot just, this has been popular in the past, I made Jesus my Savior, but I didn't make him my Lord. I prayed a prayer. Where is that in Scripture? You don't make Jesus anything. Anything. He made you. Where in Scripture do you find a, find a disciple calling on Jesus? calling Jesus to take him on, which was the rabbinical tradition, by the way. If there was a teacher, a rabbi in the law, a student approached them and asked for days and days and weeks and weeks to be tutored by them. And maybe if the person was ardent and faithful and wanted it so bad, the teacher would take them on as a student. This is opposite. This is the rabbi, the teacher coming and saying, you follow me now. You cannot make Jesus just your Savior as some kind of insurance policy protecting you from the pit of hell. He calls you, and he is your Lord and Savior. Period. There's no bifurcation there where you understand God is Savior and, and, and Lord, but you don't want to have any claim over you don't want to have any claim over your occupation, your life, your marriage, your children. You're anything. If you are in the boat of understanding that Jesus is Lord, or he, he is God, and there is a, there's some truth to this, but he has no claim over your why, you are just as good as Satan. 
You are all the righteousness of the devil. You are not part of his family. When Jesus claims you, he claims every bit of you. He gets you at your core and you change the reason why you do things. Do you understand that? No aspect of your life is off limits. You can't have a personal little habit that Jesus has no claim over. He will eventually want that too. All the sin you put on the cross. Your work, it's unto him. I love my boss. He's a wonderful man. But I ultimately don't work for him. I work for my Lord Jesus. And that's why I can get up and do it on a hard day. It's not because of my love for Alan. It's because of my love for Jesus and my love for the people. You understand that? That's when Jesus grabs your why, your heart. There's a renunciation and we're done. He is the great interferer. You will want a new identity. If you have repented of what the, the way you've lived your life, because we all come in this world completely selfish, trust me. If you don't believe that, just have a child. Just have a baby. They're selfish beyond belief. They expect you to clean them and teach them how to use the bathroom. It's just, they're selfish beyond belief. And I got four of them. I love them, but they're selfish. Where was I? He interferes. He is the great interferer. There is a renunciation. The day I woke up, the day Peter woke up, he was going to go cast nets, right? The day the sons of Zebedee, by the way, the sons of thunder, they were mending their nets to get ready. They had no idea that they were going to walk away from that. He interferes with your life, and you want him to. Because left to your own selfish devices, you will ruin yourself. There's none of you, including me. I've proven this over and over again. And if you don't believe me, just ask Jenny. I am very capable of ruining things. You want the new identity of Christ. You want that. You may not understand that you want it, but you need it. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your life and your ministry on earth. Thank you for the kingdom coming on earth just as it is in heaven. Save us from ourselves. Please, Lord, have patience with us as we know you do. And Lord, call us to yourself, God, every single day. Please change our why, change our vocation. All the riches in heaven are not worth our soul. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Please stand.